Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor and a podcast host who cares about science communication, mostly around the area of biotechnology. So today we wanted to talk about something interesting, radiation. And radiation has many places in biology, of course, our resistance to it, the problems that can be caused from it, as well as its use as a therapeutic agent. It's used to induce genetic variability when we do plant breeding, but it has some deleterious downsides. And they've represented barriers, both for remediation of radioactive waste, as well as if there's issues with uh, the side effects of, of radiation therapies for cancer. So I was excited to learn about some work that's happening at the Innovative Genomics Institute out at the University of California, Berkeley. There's work that's gone underway under DARPA funding to attempt to use gene editing to solve some of the problems associated with radiation exposure, mostly in acute radiation sickness. And so today we're going to talk to Dr. Fyodor Urnov. He's a professor in the Molecular and Cell Biology Department at the University of California, Berkeley, as well as the Director for Translation and Te Technology at the Innovative Genomics Institute associated with Berkeley. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ernoff. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is really a pleasure. I was really excited to read about this because it seems like such a cool project that's long overdue. And I can certainly understand DARPA's interest in this. I tried to frame a little bit of the problem ahead of time, but could you give me a better explanation of what is the problem with acute radiation sickness and, and where do we see it? Across the bay from the Berkeley campus is one of the best, if not the best teaching hospital in America, UCSF. And the chair of radiation oncology, Dr. Mary Fung, has told me how frustrating it is to have her patients succumb to cancers of the abdomen and of the pelvis. So things like pancreatic, liver, uterine, ovarian, despite the fact that she has a powerful weapon to cure those and cure is a big word. And the weapon is radiation. As you pointed out, as all technologies, radiation has sort of a positive side and a negative side. On the negative side, of course, we think about nuclear weapons. We think about radiation disasters such as Chernobyl in, in the USSR, where I went, grew up, was born and raised, you know, Three Mile Island, Fukushima. But then on the positive side, radiation is used to determine how our teeth are doing or how our lungs are doing, which is particularly timely given what's happening right now in our nation and is also a really, really powerful medicine to cure cancer. The reason it's not more widely available is what's technically known as dose-limiting toxicity. And in English, that means you cannot give enough of the cure 
before its side effects overpower its benefits. So in Dr. Fung's practice, I'm not a physician, so I'm, I'm, I'm regurgitating what I learned from her and others that had the honor to collaborate with. She has a patient with a, with a major cancer of the abdomen or, or the pelvic area. She can irradiate the tumor and eradicate it. But the patients do not recover because tissues that are inevitably also affected, so the gut and the bone marrow where our hematopoietic stem cells live, are irreversibly damaged uh, by the radiation itself. So the patients uh, die of either lethal diarrhea, which cannot be stopped using anything, or they die of lethal bone marrow failure. I mentioned I'm not a physician, but in working on this project, I've looked at some primary data, for, largely from animals, that were subjected to increasing doses of radiation in order to understand how to better prevent the, the, the poisoning or, or even um, eliminate it. And I tell you, you do not need any education in biology to look at an image of a of gut co of colonic epithelium. You know the beautiful crypts, the beautiful villi that that line our intestine that help us, that enable us to absorb nutrients before and after radiation. And the image is akin to a, a healthy forest before, and that same forest after a fire decimated it. It's really scary. Are there any attributes of that type of digestive epithelium that make them particularly more sensitive to radiation? Well, the first component obviously is they're in the line of fire. Second, you allude to a key point. Our hematopoiesis and our gut are maintained by stem cells. And we can obviously spend more, a lot of podcasts talking about these. Whether the peripheral cells in those organs die just as fast as the stem cells when irradiated is not entirely clear, but it is clear that the stem cells are, they basically die. And once the stem cell dies, you basically, you know, if you think about an ant colony, you've killed the queen. And in contrast to ant colonies, which make another queen, that's not how our hematopoiesis works. You cannot take a lymphocyte in the body and make it back into a hematopoietic stem cell. You cannot take a differentiated cell that forms a, 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 a villus in, in, the, in the gut uh, and make it back into a stem cell. I should also add, uh, now moving from the unmet medical need and radiation oncology to the realm of national defense and radiation accidents. Um, I was a sophomore at Moscow State when Chernobyl happened. Uh, your audience, I know, would have seen the recent uh, HBO series about the, the horror I was then drafted into the Soviet military and I actually served with officers, some of whom were deployed um, as first responders and many of their comrades just did not survive. The tragedy in blunt terms is this. Back then, this was 1986, I, I was a 19 you know, year old kid. Um, we didn't really have a lot uh, in order to treat their uh, gastrointestinal acute radiation sickness or hematological acute radiation sickness. And we certainly had no meaningful prophylactic measures. In other words, we don't have the equivalent of sunscreen that we can apply over a human being to protect them from radiation. This was 1986 and we're in 2021 and we still don't have anything. That's a long time. But so the other thing that happened in the window of time is there's been a lot of tremendous technology developments and leading among them, of course, and obviously something we're gonna speak a lot about today, 
is the development of um, CRISPR-Cas technology to um, change DNA in, the in a targeted fashion, known as genome editing, and also control the activity of genes in a targeted fashion, a, te a related technology known as epigenome editing. This is a good opportunity for me to, of course, credit uh, my distinguished colleague here at UC Berkeley, Dr. Jennifer Doudna, who at, at the end of last year, of course, with uh, Emmanuel Charpentier were recognized with the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for, for the discovery that they made that CRISPR-Cas can be used for gene editing. And so the big picture vision of the team across four institutions that's working uh, to build a, a radiation prophylaxis is we have finally in our hands a technology that we hope can address the age-long problem that for now we cannot really either prevent damage from or repair damage from uh, radiation, whether incurred by a radiation oncology patient, a first responder who is heading into the into basically certain death as they're rushing into you know Chernobyl or Fukushima or Three Mile Island, or and this of course explains uh, the Department of Defense uh, key interest in supporting the effort is the American warfighter. You know, the, 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 the United States military has 72 special forces operators, the tip of the spear of our nation's defense. And they have to be deployed into all sorts of circumstances. And when you envisage a regime change scenario somewhere else in the world where there's a lot of nuclear material that's about to fall in the wrong hands, and you think about special forces operators who have to be dropped into that, and their mission is one, to safeguard the material before it goes into the wrong hands. You know, your heart really goes out to those people. I, but I'm, I'm eager for your questions, but I'll just tell you one story. I was, I was giving a presentation about this project um, down at UCLA, and, and I was approached by a gentleman with a military haircut, probably in his 60s or 70s. He shook my hand with a sort of iron grip that, that, that speaks to this person's background. And he said calmly, sir, I, there, I, there's only so much I can say, but I can tell you my son serves in the United States Special Forces. God bless you for what you do. And I, I, I choked back tears and I said, sir, believe me, we have your son and his 72,000 comrades deeply in our hearts as we're working with Department of Defense support to build something for them. Well, that's really, that's, that's wonderful that you're thinking along those lines. I know there's been a lot of efforts over the years to develop things like free radical scavenging compounds and things that, you know, that goes back in the 80s too, and they never really panned out for radiation. But, but I guess another place where this applies is in space travel. And if we're going to do any kind of deep space travel, like to Mars or colonization, how much of, how much does radiation inhibit that kind of activity as well? One of the remarkable things about working with DARPA is it is an extraordinary force for integration across various branches of the federal government. Obviously, national defense, defense of first responders and the civilian population in a first, in a dirty bomb scenario is their primary objective. Precisely as you allude to, we have had representatives from NASA listening closely in to what we are up to because, you know, needless to say, um, while obviously radiation oncology patients, first responders, our nation's defenders are, are first and foremost, you know, our nation has sent the first person to the moon. And it's entirely realistic to envisage a, a near-term future where the same happens to uh, parts of our solar system beyond our satellite. 
I, I had the honor to correspond with Dr. Kate Rubens, who is an, an American astronaut. Um, I think she's currently on the International Space Station. She was a professor at the Whitehead. She was the first scientist to sequence DNA in space. And she sent my five-year-old daughter a photograph of her in a spacesuit, and it's on my daughter's wall because she wants to be an astronaut like Dr. Rubens. And the reason I bring this up is it's impossible to not think about her and her colleagues boarding a spaceship for an extended trip to a planet, our neighboring planet in the solar system, and frankly, trepidating over their welfare. You know, the entire world will be watching. And, you know, we, of course, want to do everything we humanly can to make sure they get there safe, that they thrive, that they return home, because they're basically putting their, their lives on the line in the, in the name of, you know, the, the best atoms of the human spirit, the spirit of exploration of the frontier. Yes. And certainly as a, as a child and a young, young man who grew up in the USSR, you know, of course, everyone wanted to be Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, or Valentina Tereshkova, the first uh, woman in space. Um, I, as all ex-Soviets, carry the space program very deep in my heart. And it deeply inspires me to think that not only could the results of our work positively benefit oncology patients, first responders, civilians, warfighters, but, you know, the vision that something, the Innovative Genomics Institute in partnership with UCSF, the Whitehead and Carnegie Mellon, that we could build a CRISPR medicine that will be given to an American astronaut heading to Mars. Are you kidding me? If, if you had told me that I would be doing this back when I was like a 15-year-old kid in the USSR, I would think of this as completely out there, you know, Isaac Asimov scale science fiction. And yet here we are actually talking about this. Yeah, well, that's why I reached out to you, because I I share your vision. I mean, I think this is a wonderful opportunity to solve some major problems. So we have a need in radiation oncology. We have a need in first responders and in military operations. We have a need in protecting astronauts. So we'll take a break here at the Talking Biotech podcast and come back on the other side to talk about what your solution is to dealing with these problems. This is the Talking Biotech podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. Hats off to you, talking biotechers, you're making a difference. The surveys show that the public's attitude towards the SARS-CoV-2 vaccination is, in fact, shifting. More and more people are eager to roll up their sleeves and receive a little dose of sunshine to battle the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, vaccines do not stop a pandemic. Vaccinations do. And science has met that call. But now we shift from a scientific problem to a communications problem. How do we overcome the Internet's disinformation network? A significant part of that has been public education. But more importantly, sound communication in kind and clever ways. Remember, protecting oneself is in fact persuasive... But fortifying your immunity is a step to protect the vulnerable, restore a thriving economy, and get back to normal, whatever that means, as soon as possible. To those of you who listen in countries where the pandemic has subsided, congratulations! But we have a long way to go. And here at the podcast, we hear daily 
of successful conversions that arise from simple conversations. Answering questions. Being available. Knowing where to point the skeptics so that they can find useful information. These are all great steps to resolving this monumental public health problem. And you are part of the solution. So keep up the good work, Talking Biotechers, and share the resources from this podcast. Perhaps they can be of assistance in your efforts. And now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Fyodor Urnov. He's a professor in the Molecular and Cell Biology Department at the University of California, Berkeley, and also the Director of Translation and Technology at the Innovative Genomics Institute. And that's also out at Berkeley. And we're talking about CRISPR used to solve problems with acute radiation sickness. And in the first part, we framed the issue of what can we solve? You know, what are the issues to solve? And so the problem is, is that I'm a scientist who loves gene editing. We do it all the time. But I'm having trouble connecting how we use this technology to solve this particular problem. So give me kind of the uh, back of the envelope idea. How do you use something like gene editing or DNA editing to solve a problem like radiation sickness? You know, when DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, um, shared with uh, the nation their plans to fund efforts of this type, my colleagues here at Berkeley, Jennifer Doudna, at UCSF, Jonathan Weissman, at Carnegie Mellon, Katie Whitehead, huddled around a virtual table and went, you know, well, the tool we have is CRISPR. But you know, there's the famous saying, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. What makes us think, exactly to your point, that our technology is up for the challenge? In the big picture, the answer is this. If you look at probably the biggest success story of my world, which is the world of biotech, for the past um, 20 years, and I'm serious about this, it's obviously the, the speed with which Pfizer and Moderna have been able to develop and advance through clinical trial and approval a vaccine for SARS-CoV-2. You know, my, my dad's 84, my mom's 80, and along with tens of millions of our nation's seniors and seniors worldwide, they will be soon vaccinated to be protected from a virus that should they infect them, you know, has a very high chance of killing them. The way the vaccine works is by harnessing the body's natural defense mechanisms. Now, obviously radiation assault is, has not to do with an injury to the immune system, but our bodies do do have the ability to heal radiation damage. And I imagine that every single person who's listening to this uh, is living proof of that because they would have had a dental x-ray. Not to scare anyone, but believe me, when the physician in your dentist's office points that device at your mouth and then pushes go, it's not exactly that they're applying soothing balm to the skin or they're radiating it. Similarly, if, if a physician prescribes you a chest x-ray, let's see, you know, how are your lungs doing? Again, it's not exactly an inhalation of eucalyptus oil. The reason that the overwhelming majority of people, the vast majority, suffer no ill effects 
is because when you get irradiated, our body, our cells, upregulate natural mechanisms for recovering from radiation damage. If we look across biology, there's a lot of really nice examples of creatures like um, even bacteria, like Dinococcus radiodurans or uh, tardigrades, um, cockroaches, that seem to survive radiation just fine. So is there something across biology that suggests that there are perhaps latent mechanisms that our cells could be using to solve the problem? I think you aced it. Um, you know, Theodosius Dobzhansky, one of our, certainly one of my heroes and a hero to most experimental biologists said, nothing in biology makes sense except in light of evolution. <laughs> you know, to be honest with you, I don't think anybody is a fan of cockroaches, but it is deeply important to know that critters as different as tardigrades and cockroaches have managed to harness something about mother nature that makes them resistant to radiation that basically would would, would kill a human being in 72 hours. Um, we share deep biological similarities with um, pretty much all living systems. And, you know, my favorite example about such similarity is uh, hibernation. You know, we think of this as you know, something incredibly specialized to something like the bear. Um, but people fail to appreciate how closely related genetically we are to the bear. And I'm not suggesting that we're going to go into dens and sleep, lowering our body temperature by seven degrees centigrade and slow our heart rate to five beats per minute like bears in the next six months. But I am saying that our biology is put together from different pieces. It's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. And in different creatures, different tiles are slightly differently colored or, or, or emphasized to a different extent. So in Brass tacks terms, it's not the case that we need to like stick into a human being a cockroach gene. Absolutely not. It is the case that we need to upregulate our body's natural defenses. So now shifting from this basic statement that, you know, a chest x-ray or a dental x-ray typically doesn't kill anyone despite causing major damage. We now turn all the way to the other side, which is as discovered by Jennifer Doudna here at Berkeley and Emmanuel Charpentier, CRISPR-Cas is a way to go into a human cell with its, you know, 6.6 .6 billion letters of genetic information, obviously, you know, 500 college textbooks worth of text, and recognize an individual letter at a precise position, and then affect a certain type of change. We've never had anything like this. I mean, again, if you told me when I was a 12, 13-year-old kid, and I, you know, read my first books about DNA and decided I would be a geneticist, that I would live to see us you know, the equivalent of Microsoft Word for, for human DNA, I'd go, yeah, no. And yet here we are. I mean, as, as you pointed out, you, Kevin, and, and folks in my lab and pretty much, you know, tens of thousands of laboratories around the world use uh, the fruits of Jennifer's and Emmanuel's discovery in their daily work to change DNA and then you, everything. Pretty much, you know, you can do a human embryonic stem cell. You can do uh, a mouse. You can do a cow. And, you know, most importantly for me and my, my fellow scientists who focus on translating CRISPR-Cas to the clinic, I'm hopeful some of your audience will have heard the story of a woman named Victoria Gray. Mm -hmm. uh, she was recently treated with CRISPR-Cas uh, for her sickle cell disease and two years post-treatment, she appears to be disease symptom-free. So, you know, seven years after uh, 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 folks in Jennifer Doudna's lab here at UC Berkeley discovered how CRISPR-Cas works, we have several human beings who have been CRISPR'd and are, and are cured. So this gives us tremendous, you know, not just hope in the hypothetical, but like actionable hope that sort of the equation human being plus CRISPR equals medical treatment 
has solutions. One of the fascinating things the Department of Defense has been very clear with us on is they do not wish to permanently genetically modify the soldier. This is because the soldier is not an automaton. It is somebody's son. It is somebody's wife or husband. You know, it is somebody's child. So, you know, DARPA does not want to genetically engineer the American warfighter. And yet, CRISPR has a shot on goal here. And you'll ask me, well, how can that be? Isn't that like, didn't I just contradict myself? And this is where a different facet of CRISPR emerges, which is you can do, use it to do genome editing, which is change DNA, like repair the mutation in sickle. Or here's a, a term that may be new for some of your listeners. You can do epigenome editing. What's the epigenome? As you go through life, your genes turn on and off, um, activate their expression and repress it. And effects of the environment basically create a, a layer of information that's not doesn't change the DNA, but change what the genes do. And that's called the epigenome. And I think a prime example of that, that many of your audience will be familiar with, is how dietary folate supplementation in women who have chosen to have a biological child has really reduced the incidence of um, uh, birth defects such as spina bifida. How does that work? It doesn't work by changing the DNA. It acts by making sure that the developing baby has a healthy epigenome. The, fo the folate in your diet provides a chemical component that's essential to giving the genes of the developing baby proper instructions on how to, for on how to be healthy. So a small molecular tweak to CRISPR-Cas slightly changes the flavor of what that molecular tool does. Specifically, it changes from changing DNA to changing what genes do. And the beautiful thing for purposes of radiation oncology or national defense is epigenome editing is reversible. So we can build a CRISPR-Cas epigenome editor that will create a very specific effect on the cell for example, upregulate its native radio, radio protective circuitry, but do that for a specific window of time. For a special forces operator, the explicit scenario is the tours of duty that the nation's warfighters go on are weeks. And so the, the medicine is expected to give them a protection for a month. Um, with radiation oncology, Dr. Fung across the bay at UCSF um, knows when she's going to schedule the radiation. So she knows when to start the window of radioprophylaxis using our hope for CRISPR, CRISPR epigenome editor. I know I've just said a lot about new, potentially new technologies. And, you know, honestly, and I think this, your audience might find this interesting, none of this existed a few years ago. So we are literally assembling this plane as we're flying it out of various parts that we didn't have as, as recently as a decade ago. So it's an extraordinary experience. Do you know the genes that are required for that kind of um, recovery from radiation damage or, or prophylaxis against it? Some of them. And we're certainly going after them in our pilot experiments. Um, nobody has ever systematically looked like we have 25,000 genes, right? 25 sort of bits of who you and I are. Now, of course, things like splicing give us a lot more different flavors of those genes, but at the end of the day, we, we know the list. Um, and which ones of those form the entirety of our radioprotective circuitry? We actually don't know. Now, I know I've said that CRISPR can be used to change genes. I know I've said that CRISPR can be used to change the epigenome, 
Believe it or not, the Swiss Army knife that is CRISPR steps in yet a third way, which is starting with work that was done at um, places across the world in about, about a year or two after Jennifer's and Emmanuel's discovery. People have built CRISPR into a tool for to systematically discover the entire complement of genes that are responsible for a biological circuit of interest. So what that means in English is we are taking hematopoietic stem cells, which normally die under radiation. We're taking gut intestinal stem cells, which do the same. And we're using CRISPR in yet a third flavor to systematically perturb the function of each human gene one by one to find all of those that could be radioprotective. And guess what? Once we find that list, you know, gene 29, gene 478, gene 11,068, we will now repurpose CRISPR to edit the epigenome at those protective genes to collectively tune them up or tune them down if they cause the cell to die prematurely as our radiation, radioprophylactic medicine. It, it's all really interesting, and I can imagine how it comes together. I can totally visualize how to do this. But what is the deal with the reversibility? How do you have a reversible molecular gene editing medicine? We can tune the duration of the effect. Think of this again. You know, I, 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 I'm at a bit of a loss for a perfect metaphor, so, so I apologize if this is, if this is too simplistic. If you imagine a human being applying makeup to their face, you know, you can buy different flavors of makeup. Some makeup lasts an hour, some makeup are, uh, lasts two days. It really depends on what the person's goals are in terms of appearing a certain way. The epigenome by nature is dynamic. In other words, it's not like forever. So the, the closest analogy I can offer you is in building our CRISPR-based epigenome editors, we instruct them to begin with to have their effect last for a given window of time. Oh, okay. I see, so you're using epithelial cells and hemopoietic cells which have a finite lifespan. So, you, so you know that it's gonna turn over. That's where, I, that was the missing link for me. The only makeup I know is clown makeup. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a good, that's not a great analogy for me. Am I, <laughs> here, but but I, I know some people who wear makeup and gl gladly so, so there you have it. This has been really fascinating. I think it's really cool stuff. I hope that we can keep in touch and that as you have breakthroughs from this project that we can talk about them here. Um, this is the kind of edge that this audience absolutely loves. So, you know, congratulations on the outstanding award and the really innovative work. You really put the innovative in the Innovative Genomics Institute. So if people wanted to know more about your work or the project, where could they find out more? You know, innovativegenomics.org, the Innovative Genomics Institute is honored to partner with UCSF, the Whitehead, Carnegie Mellon, and with DARPA to build this. And because this is a project uh, that is supported by the federal government in the name of national defense, we are honored to give updates because, you know, we are basically working for the American people. So uh, our websites will have updates. And of course, you know, most importantly, there is this thing called clinicaltrials.gov. For me as a director of translation, which means putting things into the real world, until we are in the clinic in, Mary, in Dr. Mary Funk's clinic across the bay, treating our first radiation oncology patients, this is not a success. This is just research. But believe me, we're highly fired up to do it together. Excellent. And you're also on Twitter. I am. I've, I've learned that this thing exists. It's been an affecting experience to be able to, 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 to share some perspectives on what, on, what, on what we're doing with, with, with folks who, who follow us. 
Yeah, so do you have a, a Twitter user? I can find your Twitter username. I'll put it in the text along with this uh, episode because uh, people in this audience really do like to follow there. Indeed. Well, Indeed. well, Dr. Ernoff, thank you so much for your time and, and your um, efforts in this area. It's super great to hear about innovative ideas and uh, really look forward to hearing more. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You know the drill. Uh, write reviews on iTunes, any place you consume podcast media. Um, tell a friend. You know, there are lots of people who are interested in this, and I'm so surprised that I constantly meet people who say, I just discovered the podcast, and now I have 300 episodes I have to go back through. So in the, in the the for the sake of science communication and saving people the hassle of downloading 300 episodes, share it early and often. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are, but it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.